So what are you drinking, Connie? You know what? I'm drinking iced wild berry zinger tea. Is that uh, is that celestial seasonings tea? Yeah, and instead of having a brewmaster, <laughs> they have a blendmaster. And I just had to read you one line. I won't read the whole thing. It's too boring. But Do the it. blendmaster wrote, the freshly picked taste of this luscious blend evokes thoughts of coming home at dusk with pails full of ripe berries bursting with flavor. I, nice. I just thought that was creative. Very nice. I'm not I'm not even drinking great water. I'm just like um I just I'm like really just drinking tap water, so I don't even have a great description for you today, but I I love celestial seasonings. I went to their factory a few years ago and I got some like chapstick that was or lip balm that was uh sleepy time tea flavored and I loved that and you can't get it online and if we have any listeners in Boulder I'm just saying um really love that um love the the chapstick so um I have no idea if they even make it anymore hmm I never heard of that that means that so that's why you fall asleep at your desk once in a while <laughs> yeah totally that's it <laughs> Put on the chapstick. Good night. I haven't done that in years, not since I was pregnant. <laughs> so, um, everybody, this is uh, this is how this episode came about. Connie and I basically just kept talking after the last episode and uh, kind of kept emailing back and forth. And we were like, you know, we're spontaneous, dynamic, revolutionary, whatever. Brian's at a conference right now, uh, so he couldn't join us, but we thought we would continue the conversation because there's, while we sort of talked around design thinking and, and related issues a lot, we didn't, we didn't really delve into it much. Um, and I'm sure that Connie is going to school me because she's much more knowledgeable about this topic than than I am, so I I, I totally signed up for that, um, and uh, yeah, so I we thought we would just kind of keep talking around some of these uh, some of these issues that we like to talk about. Well, you know what's interesting? I don't really feel that I'm uh, extremely knowledgeable knowledgeable about it as much as it's something that I really want to explore for instructional designers. You know, how can we borrow? design thinking from other realms and how can we incorporate it into our practice so for me it's a it's a process of research and discovery really just like what design thinking is where i've just been reading about creativity and design thinking and i've been involved in some there's a design thinking group in on linkedin and really i just feel like i'm learning too to trying to figure out how do we make as someone uh recently said how do we make that inner dialogue you know, how do we become mindful of it, mm-hmm. and how do we um, really leverage it for instructional design mm-hmm. or learning experience design? So, really, it's a completely open book. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I was I was catching up on podcasts the last uh, I had some driving to do in the last couple of nights, and so I was listening to podcasts, and um, there was an episode of Let's Make Mistakes. I just won't call out any of the titles. Uh, let me, Let's Make Mistakes, but I'll. Um, I'll link them up. Um, and it's, you know, I want to return to, again, that idea of clearly their design process is so much. And, and this is, you know, really a professional design studio at the top of their game, you know, kind of um, place. And clearly their process is so different and so much longer than what I sense is the typical instructional design process within a corporate environment. Mm-hmm. Um 
And that was that was brought to my attention again by them saying things like, when I write something or when I design something, I have to let it sit for a few days and come back and whatever, you know. And um, I think that most most project schedules that we that we put together or, or follow don't tend to allow for that. They they um, allow enough time to type but not write, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind Funny. of that's kind of what I what I sense, and and I'm I'm this is going somewhere I promise. Um, that's that's sort of when I look at um, your what you've um, uh, listed as design processes. You know there are there are so many things in here that are maybe shafted or don't you know don't happen at all. They don't happen to a great enough degree. So I thought I'd give you a little lead into um, your your thoughts on design processes. Yeah, and really. I'm just taking it from other fields. There's, you know, the graphic design field, and uh, I wrote an article that had fewer design processes, but processes than what I was going to mention now. But Stanford's design school has lists five elements of the design process, and it's kind of funny the way I see it. Um, the way I see it fitting into one of our methodologies is that when we're doing analysis and design, right at the towards the start of the project to kind of I, I imagine it like opening up there mm-hmm. and that we can try to fit in this design process there so they call it empathize but um, I thought that research and discovery which I think comes from the user experience uh, world fits what we do better so we want to um, that the first phase is uh, researching you know the content the audience discovering them and and I think that relates to empathy and the whole empathy comes in where you're trying to put yourself in the learner's place and trying to understand you know how do they feel what is it like to do their job so empathy is a cool thing but I don't see that as as our first phase you know it's more like empathy is part of research and discovery well what do you think about that first phase um I you know I I see a lot of or I, I think I don't see enough of really thinking about the user, uh, which is to me what what empathy you know seems like, um, and in any phase. Um, and I like you were saying the last time we talked. I think sometimes you're not even allowed to. Um, talk to your users. Um, We think a lot about our customers, you know, whether it's our boss or our clients, stakeholders, SMEs. Um, And so I I think that, yeah, I mean, I I typically don't see it happen. And and I'm, and I am totally guilty as well from time to time. I mean, I, or from, you know, lots of times, (laughs) you know, I, I'm not trying to excuse myself in that at all. You know, it's interesting. I don't want to get too uh, off the topic, but one thing that I found from years of consulting and working in different organizations, the the unbelievable opposite perspective that stakeholders and supervisors and managers will have um, than their the, than the learners, you know, who are usually their underlings. Totally. It's just amazing when you talk to the actual learners; it's very different. You know how they perceive um, what they need to learn and what their challenges are. So that's just kind of interesting. It it really uh, it's really a, a sin or a crime to not let the designer talk to the audience. It just shows such a such fear and insecurity. Totally. But anyway, yeah. But hey, listen, I don't want to take one of those bitching pills. So let's go on. <laughs> okay. Uh, so positivity. So. Uh, 
the next phase in the design school paradigm is define, and I don't think anyone could argue with that. We need to define the, the problem. We need to know uh, what the learning goal is, or perhaps it's not even a, go- a learning. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. it's an informational goal, or maybe a user interface on a piece of software needs to change. Whatever it is, I think we they call it in design thinking, they call it defining the problem. And I think uh, I think we might do that fairly well in, in our methodologies. What do you think? Um, I think that, that that's probably one of the things that we do best, if only because a large portion of the time our requirements are just handed to us. <laughs> uh, is that bad? <laughs> this is the bitching pill. But, you know, I, we, but it's our job to, to explore further. Um, and I don't know whether I said last time, sometimes I have a problem with the, you know, um, you want to do a good job as a designer, you want to be a consultant and such, you want to solve the real problem, offer an intervention that, that addresses the real problem. Um, and it sometimes the response is, you know, why aren't you just taking my order, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, totally. Do you, okay, I'm glad that it's not just me who gets that because... Um, you know, yeah, I, I'm. I sometimes think, well, you know, maybe I'm just not good enough at compliant. <laughs> well, okay, we all know that, I think, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just not kind of good enough at getting to the root of the problem as quickly as I need to, or something like that. You know, but um, I'm sure I'm I'm not as good as some. So, um, but I'm glad to hear that that it's well. Often you're not hired to get to the real root of the problem, right? Right. You know, they they want you to do to create training. So we just do. I mean, I just always feel like I do the best that I can in the in in, in those situations. You know, some I can't. I I I, I'm, I don't have complete power over things. So if it turns out that you know training is part of the problem, I just work on that part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that um, that's a lot of that goes back to. Um, um, I guess your your mention of like is the real problem training or is e- even is the real solution a course um, goes back to that empathy for me. I mean, I think that some people sometimes you get from stakeholders um, that like doing a course because it's more effort than some less invasive methods is doing more for the learner. Do, does does that make sense? Um, when when actually the learner would like to just have the information at their fingertips and get back to their job right. because people want to do well at their job. Right, right. Anyway. Um, totally. Uh, they would much rather get the information than sit and take an entire course. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And I'm looking forward to these new, um, to the uh, Tin Can API because I, somehow I get the sense that I haven't used it or seen it, but somehow I get the sense that we'll be able that people will be able to get to the information more quickly. That maybe it won't be so locked up. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I have actually thought I've seen a lot of I kind of keep on I kind of keep up on the discussion and um, I have seen a lot lately about um, different criticisms and um, sort of. Sometimes I feel like that's coming from thinking that Tin Can only gives one advantage. I think one of the big advantages is that there's no logging into an LMS necessarily. You know, it's it's everywhere, or it can be. You know, Tin Can statements can be sent from from everywhere and even passively. Um, so yes, I think that's you're right on um, that. That's one of the big advantages. That Again, get people back to their jobs faster. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, 
the third step of this, uh, and I, of course I'm, I wrote it down, I'm reading this, the third step in this paradigm, so that we've got research and discovery, define the problem, and then the third one is ideate. Mm-hmm. And first of all, I never even heard of that word several years ago. When I first heard it, I loved it. It just was, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know a word for generating ideas, and it's ideate. Right. And, and it's, very that, it's very active. What? And it's a very active word. You know, it, it's not just thinking. You know, it yeah. doesn't sound passive. It's anyway. a pretty cool word. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, in fact, if I were having another child, I would name him or her ideate. Um, <laughs> well, you so... bring them into existence. <laughs> so... I think I think there are some teams I've worked in teams where we really did spend some time trying to generate ideas and I think other times you know a lot of times you just you know make a essentially an online presentation with very little ideation behind it so I feel like this is a, a stage that could use some expansion and, and could use some adoption in uh, in our methodology that it's a it could be lacking depending on where you're working, what kind of time pressures you're under. Because this is the stage where, um, you know, you're exploring and uh, especially in visual design, I find myself playing a lot. Uh, you're doing trial and error. Mm-hmm. A lot of things aren't going to work. And then you just, you know, essentially crumple up the piece of paper or delete the file and start all over again. So this is really the stage of experimentation. To me, in, in some ways, it's the most fun. It's also the place where you hit your head against the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a frustrating place. Sometimes you don't have any ideas. Um why don't we talk about, well, what do you think about it? And then maybe we can talk about some ways to get ideas. Um, I, I think one of the things um, that's really changed in my process as from my first job as an instructional designer is that um, I do a lot more of this, and I've really honed in on the situations in which I do it best. Um, I'm, I'm a social ideator, um, and I, I, so I, that's, that's one of the things I really relish about working on a design team. Um, yeah, and, or just like at least having somebody to bounce ideas off of. I just, I think better talking. I don't know what I, you know, how else to say it. Um, but I really benefit from, I mean, even if, even if it happens to be a situation where I have the best ideas in that session of anybody in the room, everybody's ideas hone it and take it further. And, um, you know, it, it comes out so much better because, and this is not designed by committee. You know, right. I, I, don't, I don't exactly what you mean. Yeah, I, I'm I, I'm not saying that like simply having people produces a better result, but um, having the the people and the right people in the right situation seems to work well for me. That works well for me too. Uh, I don't always work with teams, and so I don't always have that luxury. But I have worked with teams and and managed them even, and I do you know remember really enjoying that part. I mean, it doesn't always work great but a lot of times it does and I think when it's really flowing it feels like you're all one mind mm-hmm. just speaking and it doesn't even matter who said what in fact when you leave the meeting you can't even remember right. who said what it's just like this idea begins to form and that's pretty exciting that's a pretty exciting process now when I'm working alone uh, I will you know do a lot of sketching of ideas and when i say sketching i'm just talking about something that no one else could understand drawing blocks drawing 
arrows, drawing yes, no, just, you know, crazy stuff that is just a way to, as we mentioned last time, light up <laughs> that part of my brain that can come up with ideas, you know. Also, I get inspiration from books and other, just, you know, other things I see around me. Yeah. Um, I think we touched on this a little bit last time um, yeah. about um, about sketching and how that sort of opens up different areas of your brain. There's, I think that this is from Sketching User Experiences, which is mm -hmm. a book I love. Um, but they, they had some sketches in there from uh, some graphic designers. And there was one that was a series of sketches um, that was the creation of the Boston Whalers logo. And it was mm. really, really interesting to see sort of how he incorporated the different elements that um, that the client wanted. And even, in fact, there was, there the the final one wasn't, even the first one that they approved, like they approved, he got to a point, they approved it. And then he, he could just couldn't stop, you know, like chewing on it. He was like, no, I, I, I have an idea to make this better. And, you know, it, um, and it's a, it's a really great logo, you know? So, um, it's, I just thought that was such an interesting case study. I love being able to see stuff like that. Me too. I love mm -hmm. to be able to see idea, how ideas form. And also it's kind of an interesting, so much of this is just internal. That's why I love talking about it because <laughs> how do you know, and maybe this comes more uh, at the prototyping phase, but um, somewhere around here, how do you know when the design is done? How do mm -hmm. you know when it's satisfactory? You know, something just, uh, well, with visual design for me, um, I design websites too, and sometimes it just like feels right. There's just a little something inside that clicks. Mm -hmm. Other times you actually have to stop uh, before you feel that it's really done because mm -hmm. of, you know, the deadline that you have. So that that's kind of a not great feeling. But how do you know when you're when you've hit the right idea? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I sometimes I just know that sometimes sometimes I give up <laughs> admittedly. And I think that there are some, I think Faulkner or I don't know, maybe a painter or something, uh said that somebody told me that at work that like, you know, good art and again it's art versus design, but you know, it's never you never finish, you just give up. Um but <laughs> um so and I think sometimes it, you know, happens that way, but or, you know, I hit the deadline. But sometimes there's just something telling me to do better you know or to to work on it just to tweak it a little bit more and the weird thing the 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 difficult thing I think that I run into a lot is if I don't hit that point before I start you know development you know before I start doing things that um implementing the decisions that I've made for the whole solution then you know I have to go back and tweak a lot and mm -hmm. that's you know yeah, so it's difficult to, I mean, you, you want to hit that point where you feel like you're done because that's the, the danger is that you're going to end up with a, a lot of rework to do. Right, right. And that's, that's, well, and that's where prototyping comes exactly. in. That's, that's mm -hmm. what they call a stage um, phase four in, in this one paradigm. And um, one thing about prototyping is, is it's kind of just what you're saying is I try to find like, can this work? And I try to find the almost the, you know, I guess, you know, this is how you do it. You, you try to find the worst case scenarios. I mean, even mm -hmm. something as simple as can a text box be this big? Well, you look for the most verbose information. That's, that's a very simple example. Mm -hmm. But um, the, during the prototyping phase, you're taking everything from, uh, 
that's like essentially two-dimensional and making it kind of work, mm-hmm. at, at least to a certain extent. That's how I think of prototyping. And what I'd like to do is try to make maybe three or four prototype examples mm-hmm. to, you know, for all different cases and see, you know, can this work? Can this even, is this even a viable idea? What about you? I am a big fan of prototyping. Um, I, I I find that it's really, really hard to describe what I'm you know what an interactive experience is going to be like so um i i do prototypes to refine my ideas but also to communicate them um and you know like i said i've run into people who say that's way too much work um and and it may be it that may be fairer or less fair depending on what stage you are in the process because that um you know some people definitely feel like it's too much work if you don't really even have the job yet um uh, something like that but um but I'm a big fan of it I I just feel like it's the best way to um communicate ideas and you know again make it make it represent in its true level of doneness you know so that people you know don't don't use color unless that's you know, unless there's some really good reason for that, um, mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. do you do paper prototypes? Let's talk a little bit about hard, like tool type stuff. Do you use paper prototypes? Do you use a program? Well, that gets into that whole fidelity thing. And I was listening to a podcast from someone. Well, I've, I've heard a few podcasts that have, uh, you know, I told you an email the other day that all I see now are creativity podcasts. It must be in the, in the air. Um, so in listening to some of them, one was uh, by an, the author of, uh, I think it's called Web Design Roadmap, and then also listened to Jared Spool. He talks a lot about mm-hmm. in, in his uh, UIE, what's it called? UIE Brain Sparks, something like that. Yeah, I think so. Um, there's a lot of uh, prototyping and design talk there. And one thing some of these people have mentioned is the fidelity of your prototype. And so... Sometimes it's just a, a paper sketch, and sometimes it's a Photoshop mock-up, and sometimes it's a real wireframe, which I did for um, my iPhone app. I really had to wireframe that a lot, and I'll do that for websites. And sometimes it's a real interactive prototype. And uh, For web design, you can do that with HTML and CSS, and with um, for online learning, you can do it with you know any of the authoring tools. And you don't really want to have... Uh, too much behind it. It's kind of like smoke and mirrors. You don't want to spend a lot of time. You know, it's like if you press this button, this will happen. You don't have to put in all the content or anything. That's how I do it anyway. It's mm-hmm. always somewhat minimalist. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that depends on what your goals are. For wireframing, you're showing layout and mm-hmm. user interface. And if people aren't, uh, um, some people aren't uh, too aware of wireframing, how would you describe it? Just drawing. Essentially, the boxes and the organization of of what something looks out the looks like right. the layout. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Do you know there's a um, a website called Wireframe Magazines? Mm-hmm. Oh, is that what it's called, Wireframe Magazine? And that's pretty interesting. That they do a nice review of tools and different approaches. So people might be interested in that. So how about you with your prototypes? Um, it again, it sort of depends on what I'm trying to get across. If it's more of a wireframe, I typically use balsamic mockups. Um, and you know, it just gives a really, it communicates the, you know, the sketchy feel of it. Um, it can also be somewhat functional, you know, if you want to show, a 
um, how a button leads, you know, from here to here to here. You know, you can you can make it do that, and I like that. Um, you can even, you know, if you wanted to show something like um, uh, import a picture, and it'll like make it a sketch for you, which I think is cool. I didn't um, know that. <laughs> I've used it, but I haven't tried that. For more functional stuff, or stuff where I really want to. Um, communicate the look along with it, I'll often just use PowerPoint or Keynote um, if I can get the look that I want to, you know, if I can just import a, a graphic or something like that. If I want to make, typically if I want to make it a little bit more interactive because I find it easy to, you know, put in some animations and make it look like there's a drag and drop happening or whatever is happening. Um, and I just, you know, we're, we, of course, are very interested in tools here, but I feel like often it's just the one that you have really good flow with, that you're, you know, an expert in use and, and um, you don't have to spend time focusing on how to use the tool. Um, so I guess that's my defense of, you know, me using PowerPoint. Uh, I was but... going to say PowerPoint is it like is a great idea. It's a super idea because, I mean, I've storyboarded in PowerPoint a lot of times, mm -hmm. even before the rapid tools, because PowerPoint is has some pretty decent graphic capabilities by now. It does. It does. And you and can And so it's pretty cool. Between between the animations and action buttons, mm -hmm. you can communicate a lot of what's going to happen. Um and sometimes I sort of get to the point where um I'm like, why am I just not building this in PowerPoint? You know, because sometimes it, it is that, you know, uh, that functional. Rarely, you know. In fact, I would I would almost say never have I said, have I actually gotten, you know, to do everything that I can do. But I can mock it up so well that the client... And quickly. And quickly, yeah, that the client couldn't tell the difference. So, yeah. Yeah, that that's, they... that's a really, that's a great tool. Um and then sometimes if I really, if I'm doing a design and I really want it to be, you know, where I, color matters, we already have the layout and structure, I just did this for someone, then I'll make maybe three designs in Photoshop. They're completely non-functional, mm -hmm. but it's just, you know, here, here are three design ideas, and I like to give a client three ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could give them five, you could give them two. I don't know, for some reason people seem to like three, and you think you're done. Mm -hmm. They're going to pick one or three, but no, they always want a little bit from one, a little <laughs> bit from two, and then some from three. So, you know, and you have to redesign thing. all over again. I totally do the same thing. I, you know, <laughs> make some stuff in other programs often, bring it into PowerPoint and do three different designs and use that as a starting point for yeah. visual design, you know, and hopefully, you know, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where a client has said, um, that's it. That's it. That's the one. Um, at least not when I did the visual design. Maybe when I was having a professional graphic designer work on it. But, um, but yeah, I always expect to, you know, and, and sort of call out that, like, okay, these are starting points. You don't have to fall in love with any of them. These are not your only options. These are just ways to start the conversation about where we want to go. So, mm -hmm. And, you know, I should mention, I think it's so important for um, instructional designers to be able to mock something up, even if it's in PowerPoint, even if it's just a wireframe. Uh, to be able to communicate with artists. I've worked on teams where the artists and designers were just so excellent. You know, they put in 40, 50 hours a week only doing visual design, and they've been doing it for years. And I would never even attempt to try to do what they do. They're just, you know, so amazingly talented. And But just in communicating with them, I can mock something up, and then they just take it from there. Yeah, yeah. 
And I love when artists uh, help me with instructional design because some of them have been in the field for so long. As yeah, I mean, graphic yeah. designers where they go, oh, do you really want to do that? Is, is that good instructional design? And I go, oh, you're right. <laughs> but, I love that. The, the sometimes ego bruising effects of having multiple people on the project that, I mean, I love it. It's just, you know, if you come into it with a, a, with an inflated ego, it doesn't work as well, obviously, but just the effects of having more people in the project, more eyes on it, um, who, who know their stuff. Um, it, I, I think that's a great thing. Again, it's going to sound like I'm advocating design by committee, but I'm, I'm really not. I just oh, like, no, I just team, come, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I really like having a team. Well, you know, I don't feel like it is really ego bruising because, I mean, everyone in the, when you're designing, uh, you know, it seems like so many of the people know that it has to be a one mind kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's the synthesis of everyone's experience and talents that what is what makes a team great. So I, I love it, too. In fact, I, now you're making me want to go get a regular job. <laughs> um, I I think that it can be. I think that it's ego bruising if your ego's in the middle of it instead of the user's experience. Mm. Um, right. You know, just like just like presenting. You know, um, in Resonate, um, Nancy Duarte talks about you know the the hero going on a journey and who is the hero of your presentation. If it's you, then <laughs> that that makes it really easy for you to be nervous and for you to be out of touch. But if the hero of your presentation is the audience and they are the ones who are going to take the journey and move move forward with your idea, then all of the focus and all of the onus becomes on doing the best job possible for them. And I think yeah. the same way about design. That's really good. Yep. Good. Good point. So then the last part, I mean, now I don't get a chance to do this all the time. Sometimes I just have to, you know, throw something together very quickly. <laughs> this is an ideal this is an ideal design process. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting is how over the years we might um, change it where other fields are going, oh, instructional designers have this great methodology, you know. <laughs> so I feel like right now we're at the early stages of trying to figure out what works best for us in design. It's just so much of it is kind of, you know, a, a mystery and it's all hidden. But um, finally, that fifth phase is user testing. So we've got research and discovery, defining the problem, ideate or ideation, prototyping, and then user testing and you know the good que- uh, the big question is how far along do you start testing and working with users how far along into the process and you know i know that uh this is some place where probably our field fails to a certain extent um we don't do much testing of a prototype other than showing it to a stakeholder or client mm-hmm. And um, we don't do much formative evaluation, which is that part where, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you show someone your storyboards. And, and even just having someone read that, just read a storyboard and say, where would you, you – and you give them a task. Mm-hmm. Where would you, uh, you know, click now? And they go, well, I don't know, you know, that kind of thing. So 
there uh, I, there was an article i think it was ux magazine that i was it might be smashing i'll i'll um link it up but um that was talking about how some designers um had taken the sort of ideal recommended user testing um, methodology and did a bunch of interviews with actual designers, figured out where their pain points were, what they were actually doing, um, and at least started, you know, went toward coming up with a, a sort of real world methodology. Um, and so I don't think that, that kind of made me feel better in a way because I don't think instructional designers are alone at all in not doing much user testing. Well, you're right. I mean, just look at all the horrible user interfaces that are out there. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, and and in addition to, to allowing the time and the budget and the effort, one of the things you want to keep in mind is that um, at that point in the process, you still have to have your knees bent at some point. I mean, you can do fabulous user testing and gather all kinds of information, but if you're a day from shipping or launching, then you don't have time to actually put that user testing, you know, to to use. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. that's, you know, something I've seen. It's totally never happened to me, but, you know, I've seen it. <laughs> you, a, a friend told you. A friend told me that this happened once. <laughs> I, um, Steve uh, Krug's book, I think that's how you pronounce mm -hmm, his last mm -hmm. name, uh, Don't Make Me Think. Mm -hmm. I believe his method, I kind of just skimmed the book once, and it's, it's excellent uh, from what I saw, but I believe his method is just, you know, pretty much it's just so basic. I, I, I believe it's just, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you just, and I've done this with on a very rare occasion, is you just sit there and give someone a task. So if it were, were an application, you'd be saying, you know, create a formula in Excel. But in our case, it's just simply like go to the menu, you know, mm -hmm. choose exercise number three. Mm -hmm. Or use this job aid, you know, while you're working, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you just give someone a task and you just sit there and observe them and let or let them talk through what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty shocking how different people perceive what, what you've made. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was involved in some really extensive user testing a few months back and um, it was it was a really interesting eye-opening experience and I think that you know part of the thing I had never done user testing to that extent mm. um, and it was um, I think that part part of it is we may even tell ourselves that it's budget and time but wanting to try something new or not want not wanting to try something new and in front of other people and you know it is it's kind of not everybody has um is naturally good at just sitting back and observing you know um and so it's yeah i, I mean I, I can see how some that might be part of people's reluctance to do it too um, and I'd love to, you know, be able to like hire a professional firm to, you know, get my users and, and, um, do all the observations and, you know, uh, collate all the data and stuff like that. But that's pretty much never, never, um, a possibility. Um, what no, but I, there are some, there ahead. are some statistics, uh, or there were, you know, a long time ago, I remember reading or learning from a professor that a very small amount of formative and then, uh, you know, the final evaluation can improve a product immensely. Totally. So totally. I don't even think it needs to be that much. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and I, that was what we found. You know, we had scheduled quite a lot. And part of that was because we were still iterating. Um, mm. So this was, and this was not 
an e-learning project. This was a system. This was a piece of software. That was your uh, the LMS. The LMS you yeah, you were, yeah, that's yeah. great. A great project. Um, so, so part of the extensiveness of it was that we were actually still iterating. So that was we still had our knees bent. So we were constantly, you know, we were still making changes and then testing those, and went through quite a few rounds. Um, and you know, again, because the tool thing, I I did something that I had never done for this, um, which was actually recorded. Um, I have ScreenFlow on my Mac, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I uh, so I have the ability to record their faces as well as what's happening on the screen. Um, I re- so I recorded all the tests in ScreenFlow. Wow. I awesome. don't I don't think that I ever went back and looked at any of them, but I had the ability to do that if I needed to delve down deeper into something. So that was really cool. I had people sign forms and everything. Um, nobody nobody refused to do it. Everybody was game for it, um, and I set beside them with um, my com- a different computer um, and I just had a form that I had made in SurveyMonkey. Mm-hmm. So I was there just filling out the form and recording observations so it was a very structured sort of process. That's so, really and, good to know timing, how you did that. Timing. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. So... Yeah. And you were happy with that process, obviously. I was. That's why I'm, yes, exactly. That's why I'm putting it forth because I had never, like I said, had never done things to such an extent. And we were, I really wanted to have data, you know, to yeah. um, to make decisions upon. So um, what percentage, of, uh, I assume it was more like user interface, is mm-hmm. that correct? Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what percent of the user interface ended up needing to be changed from watching people oh. use it from observation? Um... Is it possible to quantify it like that? Maybe it's not. Um, we did some fairly major changes, and it wasn't, I would say, 20%, something like that. And it wasn't always the the um, physical design. Sometimes it was what things were named. Mm, um, right. That's so important. Naming so super important. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of that. And... It was actually a really good experience because, like I said, the time had been allowed to do that. The resources had been allowed to do that. And um, I had uh, a developer who was so into um, making it the best thing possible that she was literally, like, waiting at the waiting at the end of the day sometimes. Like, what would you find out? What it, You know, what, how did they like this or this? And that was an amazing experience. She's really great. Um, wow. So, she yeah. sounds awesome. <laughs> She's if only you could clone her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, so anyway, yeah, that was an interesting, like, I think that that's the most ideal user testing experience that I've ever been a part of. Right. Um, and so and in some ways it is more there. important for an application. Mm-hmm. In, in some ways, you know, I mean, it's more in depth, especially if people are, you know, using tools for online learning where the user interface is already defined. Usually I don't like the user interface that's already defined, but yeah. sometimes it's a real pain to yeah. go around it and make your own. So, you know, it just depends. Totally. I think that's one of the things that, that rapid tools and and a very templated approach gives us is that we don't quote-unquote have to do a lot of user testing in terms of the interface but if you're going off of that road like if you're um i just make up this terminology but um if you're not using next buttons and you're doing scenarios or something like that where the navigation is inherent to the Mm -hmm. interaction um because they're clicking on this choice or that bubble or whatever um then it's much more important i think 
Right. But you know what? It is really important when people, when we're doing interactions so mm-hmm. frequently. I mean, I can spend like three hours writing <laughs> instructions for an interaction and, mm-hmm. and still feel like I didn't quite get it right. So I, I do think it it's, would be good to watch users. You do an interaction and see if they really can understand, you know, how they're supposed to manipulate something. Yeah. You know, back in the day when I was using, um, when we were all using a director and authorware and uh, what was the other one? And tool, uh, what was the other one? Toolbook? Tool. What's that? Was it Toolbook? I don't oh, know. Yeah, Toolbook, yeah. This was yeah. before you know, my time. We were often creating our own user yeah, interfaces. Totally. It was, you know, prior wrap before rapid and uh, the user you know the world of the user interface was in some ways more important but I think that's coming back again because people are getting a just feeling like rapid isn't quite going where we want it to yeah I, I would agree with that anyway I, yeah um, so we basically spoke about the design process maybe one of the other things we, we were oh I thought this was kind of cool I was looking up different definitions of des- design as a verb, mm-hmm. and I saw one that said thoughtful creation. I just oh, really like that. I just thought I'd throw that out there. I like thoughtful that. creation. Yeah, intention. Um, the other thing I don't know if we completely got to was just the barriers to creativity is so tied to design. You know why why people like uh, are, are scared to go there. What are, what are some of the barriers? That was something that I don't know if we fully got to discuss. Sure, let's talk. Last time, and um, I can't even remember what book I'd seen this in, but one one uh, one book I was reading was all about the different or skimming through was all about different barriers to creativity, and one was uh, not being able to see the problem accurately because you're just not perceiving things right, and you know mm-hmm. that's that's a big one. <laughs> Like a kind of cognitive bias thing that you, yeah. you already think you know what the problem is, and mm-hmm. definitely stakeholders never never impose that on us, never. So, <laughs> but but it's our job to rise above that, right? Well, I and guess not that's have it ourselves. Where, that's where the empathy and the research really comes in, really perceiving things accurately. Yeah, and, and I think we did discuss a little bit about the fear uh, of being wrong and the fear of risk. And in that podcast I listened to, Accidental Creative. Um, I listened to one today at the gym, and he was talking about you know, uh, how failure is a teacher, and that's really good to remember. That mm-hmm. when we fail at something, you know, it just means that we've learned more. And also to take small actions. So when you're taking small actions, you're taking small risks, and that creativity doesn't come to you as a bolt of lightning. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's small little actions. I mean, sometimes it does, and that's awesome. But a lot of times it's small little actions, small little risks that eventually um, turn into something, you know, that's novel and useful, which Mm -hmm. is essentially the definition of what's creative. Um, What do you think about all that? What do you you see or feel within yourself or the barriers? Um, I think that all of these... Inflexible thinking, poor work environment, apathy, not seeing the problem accurately—the things that we that you've put on here have all, from time to time, been been problems. And inexperience, you know, mm-hmm. um, certainly, you know, it, obviously, I was inexperienced at first. I, you know, got a lot of formal training because that's the way I like to do things. But um, I think I'm always inexperienced because I'm still always trying new things. Um, Good Which, point. Beginner's mind. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and sometimes that's a painful place to be. Um, you, I can definitely understand not always wanting to be learning because learning implies changing, implies, like you said, risk, um, and maybe being wrong, maybe looking stupid. And, um, yeah, I mean, and, you know, like I, like I sometimes think about we're, if we're working in a, you know, a, a corporate environment where, um, you know, it, as opposed to like a graphic designers in like an agency or where it's a more creative environment or, you know, maybe that creative process is sort of hidden from the client um, and there there's maybe more understanding of risk taking in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's easier. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe not. Um, but it seems like um, I certainly have been in corporate environments um, and people have told me um, that are averse to risk taking um, and that, you know, they're there are, um, people are probably, um, well justified, I'll say, you know, not right, but they, you know, you can see where it's coming from. That just makes it a bigger risk and you have to maybe take smaller risks to, to make yourself okay with it. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it, um, I think all of those things can be barriers. They're certainly all ones that I've experienced. And also another one that I've experienced and I've you know, heard or read about is uh, that feeling of discomfort. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to a place that's you know unknown, a little bit like Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You're going to this place that's unknown. Um, you might not be coming up with anything great for a few days and it makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So people, you know, you might want to shy away from that. And also, you know, you can work with people who or, or maybe you find this in yourself where you're just being completely inflexible people have ideas and just go no that's not going to work oh, i don't like that one you know mm-hmm. so that kind of inflexibility mm-hmm. it's it, it's it's really interesting but i think it's just good that we that we get it all you know <laughs> we get it all out there <laughs> do you think that um we talked a little bit about you know design schools or talked about talking about design schools um, and um, different cultures of different kinds of design and I don't think with my education my formal education um, or my cultural education in in corporate ID that that there was a lot of support for hey, you're going to go to a place where you're not going to be right and you're not going to come up with any good ideas for a couple of days. You know what I'm saying? That's totally not part of our curriculum or our culture. And it might not be I part know. of the design school curriculum, but it seems like being more tied into the creative process, it's probably part of the culture, that understanding. Yeah, you mean, um, sure. I would say that in a um, visual design agency, although I've never worked in one, I've been around enough of it, you know, other places where it is expected that there will be some sketching. Mm-hmm. Like in a design class that I took, we weren't even allowed to pick up, um, get, go directly to the computer, which mm-hmm. is often what I want to do. But, you know, they said, no, you have to sketch it first. Mm-hmm. So we had to sit there and, and sketch. So that is, you know, I think you're right that that's absolutely part of the culture. Now, it would be interesting to talk to, um, I know you spoke to well, someone who was a professional designer once before Jason, maybe mm-hmm. Jason his? early. Mm-hmm. He has a podcast now on our network and, um, he's doing I some listened good to stuff. It. Okay, cool. Oh, that's so, right. You did. Hmm? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it, I think at least a certain amount of ideation, play exploration is absolutely, you know, part of that culture. I mean, they, no one expects you to 
sit down at the computer and come up with um, three great logos. Yeah. You know, you would have to explore and figure out and, and run it by people and, you know, get the colors right and, and, and those kinds of things. So, yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I'm hoping that, you know, if we continue with this conversation and writing about this, that it will become more part of our process. Yeah. M- more, um, you know, out it more more obvious more aware more in our consciousness more mindful yeah of design I, I was walking last night and th- listening to a podcast and um <laughs> i've we become do nothing a, else right i've become a podcast junkie too again which is really nice um but uh there's all kinds of great stuff out there um yes. but also reflecting on that you know that thing that we keep coming back to of learning from other fields and there are great things to learn from lots of other fields and I started thinking about what do other fields have to learn from us I think that people can benefit from what we know about cognitive psychology for those people who have studied it Mm -hmm. and that's why user interface design user experience design and and so many types of design um, for the real world uh are also based on cognitive psychology. And there's also something else I think they can learn from instructional designers, and that's information design. And, and what I think of as information design is um, different from learning is you're, you're putting, uh, you have some kind of visual communication out there. It could be text, could be uh, graphics. And th- you're not expecting the user to remember it necessarily. Mm-hmm. They just need to get that information. I mean, maybe they need to remember it, maybe they don't. But it's it's a, somewhat of a different cognitive process than learning. It's just, I mean, I, I just find information design very nebulous. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's well defined, but that's how I perceive it. It's 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 not. People are not do not have to learn something, but they need to be able to look at it quickly. Assign is information design. A lot of times, the job aid is where you just need to get the information. You might not remember, but other times you do need to. Um, and I think they can get something from instructional designers on that too because I think a lot of people don't understand uh, just, I don't know, maybe it's the cognitive psychology that underlies mm-hmm. you know, the perception and the processing of information. And even if people can't get a lot from us, it doesn't mean that what we do isn't extremely valuable. It just means that our field is so unique <laughs> that um, – you know, that's another possibility. I mean, do you ever try to explain to people what you do? You know, yeah. maybe you do now, but I'm sure you went for years just saying, yeah. uh, I work with computers. You know, I mean, it's just a real right. hassle to explain yeah. to people what you do. It's so varied. Yeah, you know? totally, totally. <laughs> um, Imagine saying learning architect. That would really freak people out. <laughs> um, yeah, people would be like, you build what? You build, <laughs> you build schools? Right, right. <laughs> Was there anything else that you wanted to, to I th- talk about? It? I think that we've kind of covered what we left out of the last uh, chat. What do you think? I think we probably pretty much have, and I'm out of water. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back and finishing this con. Well, continuing this conversation. Um, that was, was, was awesome. So, well, thanks. thank you for having it with me. You know, I'm just sitting here alone, so I, I, I really, you know, needed somebody to talk to. So. <laughs> Well, good. I'm glad. Um, And I hope to see you soon. All right. Take care. There you have it.